Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is the analyst panel that uh, you always wait for. Um, I'm Aristides Pitas, uh, CEO of uh, Eurosys, a container uh, company uh, listed on the NASDAQ, and also chairman and CEO of Eurodry, a dry bulk company uh, running Kamsermax and Supermax vessels, uh, again listed on the NASDAQ. I'm moderating this panel for the second year in a row uh, and uh, I've got with me five uh, distinguished, uh, distinguished uh, analysts here to talk about the markets and give you some insight. Two of them we had last year as well, which was uh, Ben Nolan, uh, who was here from Stiefel, and uh, Randy Givens uh, from Jeffreys. From last year, we lost the three analysts and uh, the most notable one, I would say, because he came from Morgan Stanley, was uh, Fortis Yanakoulis. What we've experienced the last few years is that the big bulge company, uh, investment banks don't have uh, analysts anymore covering the shipping space specifically, which means that uh, obviously the interest in shipping is dwindling or at least uh, there is no... Uh, IPOs expected to be happening by these big companies which always want to be involved in IPOs. So that has started to fade away. There is not much support for the, uh, for the industry and interest from the investors. And uh, that's why analysts have started to look for other places to work from. And uh, this year I have Omar Nocta with me, who has uh, joined uh, Clarkson's. Uh, he was ex-Deutsche uh, Bank. Uh, I've got, uh, in addition, Michael Weber. He was the analyst, as we all know, from Wells Fargo. He has also left and started his own shop, and I'll ask him a bit later to tell us a little bit about it. And uh, we've got uh, Jay Mitchmeyer, uh, who is uh, in value investor Z seeking alpha. Again, I'd like to ask uh, Jay to give us a little bit of uh, background because he might not be so known to most of you. So anyway, last year I want to say, well, let, let, let's have these quick introductions from uh, Mike and Jay. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing now because it's very different to what you have been doing up to now? Yeah, no, so so around August of last year, you know, we saw the global pandemic and the OPEC pricing war coming. And so what we decided was we want to leave a big, cushy, bulge bracket bank and start our own research and consulting firm leading into that. Um, not kidding. The, uh, we, I was at Wells Fargo for 10 years. We, you know, a couple of associates and I left. Uh, we formed Weber Research and Advisory in August. Um, and it was really in, in advance of, uh, IMO 2020, we do a lot on the LNG and the project and infrastructure side. Um, and there was a realization that a lot of our client base, um, uh, you know, are, are hard asset investors, PE family office, and that mandates are generally getting longer and changing. Um, and so, you know, to better service those clients, um, we, we thought we could do that uh, independently, which, is, which has been the case. It's been, it's been fantastic, um, you know, last month or two notwithstanding. Um, but no, we, we cover, you know, the, the entire marine space, um, LNG. Uh, we just uh, we announced a strategic partnership with EPC Risks um, a couple of weeks ago. 
uh, and we've expanded our coverage, uh, our project coverage to utilities, uh, midstream uh, and IOCs. Um, and we're also, um, you know, before we, you know, we left wells, we we're actually working on uh, renewable energy as well. So um, it's been probably the busiest stretch of, of any of our careers, um, but uh, it's going, uh, it's going very well. And I'm glad to, uh, glad to be here um, yeah. under, uh, under the, 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 the Weber RA banner. And you're seeing interest from investors to, to, to talk to you and to do business with you because obviously you get paid for that, what, yeah. for what you provide and there is that interest, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest, the only real difference in what we're doing now, what we're doing now and what we're doing before from a, from a client perspective is that, you know, we, we don't have trading, so we, we get paid in hard dollar and soft dollar and on a consulting basis uh, as well as research subscriptions. But it's, yeah, there's definitely, definitely interest and, you know, it just, and I'm sure everyone else can speak to this, but it evolves. Like I was talking to a couple of PE guys last night and, you know, they're putting their, you know, they're putting their pencils down on hard asset investments and digging into credit because there's a trillion dollars of dislocated high yield credit right now. Um, that's, you know, that with dislocated 14, 15% yield that they can't pass up. So that, you know, we try to stay ahead of that um, and uh, provide a degree of expertise that's, you know, applicable to hard asset investors, credit investors and equity investors. But yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm sure these guys would, would agree as well. Yeah. Jay, can you tell us a little bit about your business and exactly, you know, what your institution is and how it works? Very briefly, please. Sure, absolutely. I guess I know I've made it when it's called an institution, but uh, I've been involved in the markets for about 10 years uh, through Seeking Alpha, independent blogging and research. I got into shipping back in about 2009, 2010, off the last crash. Uh, very interesting uh, small cap stocks, not necessarily priced according to fundamentals. Uh, a lot of dislocation in this market. In 2015, we launched our independent research business, Value Investors Edge. So we're coming up on our five-year anniversary here. Uh, we have about 12,000 uh, public followers. Those are folks that just read the public blogs and stuff that we put out. And we have a little over 500 uh, subscribers and members uh, to our research platform. Uh, I've had the privilege to meet everyone here on the panel in person a couple times, so that's been great. And uh, happy to uh, start off this virtual panel. Glad everyone's staying uh, safe and healthy. Okay, thank, thanks, Jay, for this introduction. Omar, tell us a little bit, because also Clarkson's is a little bit different from the standard uh, investment bank that uh, we have been used to. Tell us very quickly a few things about what you do. Sure, yeah. Thanks, Aristides. And just one small correction. I think you misspoke earlier. I, uh, I think Deutsche Bank's a fabulous organization. Uh, you meant to say, I think, Dalman Rose, uh, which is- I'm where... sorry, yes, you're right, you're right, yes. Uh, no, so I've been with Clarkson's for, for six years. And uh, you know, Clarkson's is the, the, the largest uh, ship broker when it comes to chartering vessels or, or ordering ships or, or acquiring vessels. Um, and we provide all kinds of other shipping services. And within that, uh, that company is the investment bank which was founded roughly about maybe 10, 11 years ago. And so we're, we're full service investment bank focusing on shipping, um, oil services, mining. Those are sort of the main uh, pieces of the business and it's the cargo and its journey. So basically trying to understand and, and, and follow the sectors that uh, basically the vessels are, are carrying their the commodities of. Okay, th th thanks so much for that. Uh, I won't ask uh, Ben and Randy to tell us about the organizations. They've been there for a long time. Everybody knows them. They are investment banks that are really active in shipping for many years. So let me jump directly into looking at a little bit how the markets are and discussing the markets. And I, I think I want to take it by sectors. 
last year, uh, when we talked about the market a year ago, uh, everybody was pretty bullish. All the five analysts were, were quite bullish for the year. And in fact, that proved to be right. I mean, the uh, Capital Link Maritime Index increased 66% from uh, March last year till the end of this year. I, I'm only looking towards the end of this year because after that we had the coronavirus thing which nobody could have predicted. So yes, uh, you analysts did a good job in predicting that we would have a good year. 66% is a great growth. Uh, on sectors, you were quite different. Uh, Randy said the tankers would outperform. That was his best uh, sector last year. And indeed, it ended up uh, outperforming by 100% over where it was up till the end of that year. Notwithstanding that, it has fallen back to where it was last year, uh, only in three months. But this is the corona effect, and that's okay. Um, on the other side, uh, Ben had uh, then said that uh, it's going to be the, the dry bulk that's going to outperform. Well, that did very well as well. It went up by about 60%, not as much as tankers, but it was still a very good return. So uh, topics were different, but overall things went according to what you all suggested. Only the LNG sector outperformed. Uh, did worse uh, in last year than where it was in March uh, last year, which most of you thought it would have done better. But that was the past. And now let's go back and let's look into, into the future and what can we say about the future. Of course, the virus thing is uh, a big thing, totally unpredictable. Nobody knows how it will develop and it is the single most important factor that will, uh, will uh, shape the form of the markets. But let's try and see what, what, what specific things we have on, on each of the sectors and, and what your views are. Uh, so let's start with the crude tanker. So Omar, can you tell us a little bit how you view this section very quickly and then if you have any particular uh, companies or ideas that you want to mention? Sure. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting you bring up the, the crude tankers and, and you know, Randy, your call last year. You know, it's in, the, the, the funny thing about the tanker sector is that the reasons why things have gotten better have basically been for reasons completely unexpected. Um, and, you know, obviously now with what we're seeing, the, the, the Saudis cutting prices drastically bringing on more, much more flow into the market. It's really taken a, a market completely by surprise. Vessels are out of position in basically every refinery out there that has the opportunity to get barrels from the Middle East is going after them. And so you have a situation where you have oil prices that are under a lot of pressure. The contango has widened or been created and then widened. Um, and you have vessels that are going into new routes that we haven't seen in years. And so a lot of barrels are coming from the Middle East going to the US Gulf. And there's still also U.S. golf barrels going to the Far East. Uh, you have West Africa barrels coming from, uh, from West Africa, obviously, going to the U.S. And then you have U.S. barrels going to Europe. And so the, you have this really unique point in time where you have a lot of production and, uh, um, and exports out of the Atlantic Basin, out of the U.S., at the same time that you've got brand new routes coming back out of the Middle East. And so 
you have just a lot more flow, a lot more logistical patterns that are really tying up vessels for much longer. And we think over the next several months, you're going to have outsized earnings for the crude tanker sector that, um, that pulls up product as well. But really crude is going to, we think, benefit very well. And then you have a situation developing where that we're, we're going to transition to a need to uh, store oil at sea as we run out of source space on land. And so we're going to be tying up ships for longer periods, just purely for floating storage. And I think probably the biggest difference when we think about the market as it stands today versus say 2009 and 10, when we had the first sort of real blowout of the contango and then in 15 is that the order book for, for the tankers as we go into 2021 is, is very low. In 2009, you had an order book that was about 35% of the fleet. In 2015, you had an order book that was about 20. And now we're looking, I think, as we, uh, as we look at it for 21 onwards, the crude order book is maybe four, four and a half percent. And so we have a much tighter market with some really strong near-term demand dynamics that we think will allow for some very strong earnings power for, for, for the group. So you believe that the markets are going to be stronger for tankers? Uh, whatever happens with the, the virus thing, you think that it's going to be a good year for the crude companies. What do the other people think uh, on, on this uh, topic of, of tankers? Is somebody has a view? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I generally I agree with, with most of what Omar was saying. I think it's going to be a bit, I don't think it's, it's going to be a bit more complex in that in terms of and just maybe just that description not to put words in, in omar's mouth but the, the notion that it's just going to be positive for tankers throughout the balance of the year i think we're already seeing you know structural floating storage you know take hold of 100 million barrels uh, as we speak and the market's going to grapple with the depth of that storage trade um and which is really a function of the pain threshold for different opec nations producing into this i know you know a lot of the ancillary states are already feeling feeling it on the budget side um and then once that, you know, once we get to, once, once the market, you know, figures out wherever that, or, or thinks it figures out exactly wherever that peak level is, you know, you're going to get the same kind of de-risking we saw go into tankers when everything that was price levered traded off a couple of weeks ago, right? So that same vis vicious kind of positive correction we saw in tankers, we're going to get when, when people start, you know, fading the storage trade. And I think we still have a few weeks before that happens. I think we're still exploring the depth of that storage trade. So I would say, you know, we're pretty bullish near term, interme you know, intermediate term. I think, you know, once we start coming out of this, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a big push to be levered to names that have positive correlation to price as opposed to volume. And then kind of settling in beyond that, I, I, I very much believe what Omar is saying in terms of the fact that this will be the third year in a row where we, you know, we've had this exogenous shock that has kept orders from coming in on top of, of, of less available capital. So, you know, the long-term dynamics quietly, once we move past, you know, the extreme volatility we should continue to see this year um, is actually very positive. Um, and it'll be fun to, to go back in the last half of this year and look at, you know, whose scrubber investments are you know, above water or underwater, who's still installing them. What does that spread look like? I know it's collapsed now. Um, and, and what, you know, what lingering effect that may or may not have, because certainly it's, it's been kind of put out in the wash, but um, you know, we'd be, positive near term, we'd be very conscious of a, of a big rollover once we see risk coming back into the market. Um, Does, and then uh, right. longer term, I'd agree with them more. Do, doesn't anybody think that uh, it's highly likely that uh, Saudi Arabia will be pushed by the US uh, into and, and uh, Russia into finding an agreement whereby uh, they agree to reduce output uh, quite soon, which 
could possibly be bad for the Kahoot space. Any, it, any of your other guys has an idea, a thought? I mean, it's, it's, it's really just too little too late for that. I mean, it, when they started this oil price war a little over three weeks ago, uh, talking about one or two million more barrels coming on the market, right? We thought they'd have, what, maybe a two million barrel cut. And then they said, no, we're going to have one or two million barrel addition. And that was enough to completely tank the market. Uh, but now we're looking at up to 20 million barrels a day of demand deficit. And we don't know how long that's going to last. But if we look at China, we're talking two to three months. So, I mean, it's an order of magnitude of difference. And even when China comes back, or even when the rest of the world comes back online, it's not going to be a snapback, right? It's going to be a gradual uptick. So I, I think it's really too little too late. Um, I think if they do bring a little bit of production back offline, uh, we're still going to see this huge oversupply for at least two to three months. Yeah, I think yeah, and, and, you know, I was pretty bullish on the tankers last year. Um, again, this year, I would say that's the top sector for 2020. Just even in the next few months, you know, when rates are staying at 140, 150, 160,000 a day, look at the forward curve for April, May, June, you know, July is maybe 100,000 a day. Um, we're hearing six-month charters booked today at $100,000 a day, right? One year for 75. So all that to say, in the next three months, at 100 plus thousand a day, that more than offsets the back half of the year if it goes back to 30, if it goes back to 20, right? Just the cash flow, um, the balance sheet improvement, the huge dividends that are coming. So I think that tanker stocks trade up immensely here and, and disconnect further from energy prices uh, in the next few months, especially as companies start reporting earnings, right? In late April, in May, paying out big dividends, all of these things. You know, will there be a, a curtailment of rates and a softening of rates in the back half of the year? Absolutely. But at the same time, that's when we expect to demand uh, for demand to start picking back up. And then 2021, just looking at the lack of scrapping in 2019 and the likely lack of scrapping in 2020, we think a lot of that gets offset and scrapping starts rebounding in 2021. So the next three to four months is a supply push of crude. The following three to four months is a demand pull. And then 2021 is just a supply softness, all of which keeping rates above cash payments for DHT, Frontline, International Seaway, you know, some of these large crew tanks. So I think we have a consensus here. No, 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 yeah, it's it's. I would just say it's difficult to see to, to think that the equities would somehow look past rates going 20 to twenty or thirty and just relying on the cash flow that's in the back, you know, in, in the rearview mirror. And they're going to be forward-looking mechanisms. So, uh, you know, I think I think we're generally in the same. We're all in the same place on a long from a long-term perspective. You know, the fact that you know cash or you know the, the the tankers are are minting money coincidentally with the market today, I think it's it's it would be it would run counter to you know about 15 years of the data to, to suggest that you know the more the stocks would hold in while rates go to 20 because people are just happy with the cash flows and the coupons they're going to get from the first half of the year i would also go back to something omar mentioned um around uh around the osps and then your question around uh what the saudis do it, you know they put those those discounted osps out awfully quickly they were basically shooting at, you know, at us and the russians from the car window on the way home from that meeting i mean those came out right away I, 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 there's no there's certainly, the, 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 we haven't seen any indication that there's there's any you know, any, any thought of relenting, um, and even the pressure that we would see from from other Gulf 
Gulf states. I think historically hasn't really mattered that much um, in terms of pressuring kind of the big dog in, uh, in OPEC. But uh, yeah, I would agree with okay. Phil more on that. I think that, I think that's right. Uh, I, I think you have to, when, when looking at Saudi Arabia, you have to look at what the motivation is. I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that they're out to uh, really cripple uh, U.S. production. And, and they haven't done that yet, but give it six more months and they will have. And our internal forecasts are next year, you could see U.S. production down a million barrels a day. Two weeks ago, that would have been unthinkable. Um, but if, uh, if that is in fact the case, uh, one of the primary drivers behind the strength in the tanker market has been increasing ton mile demand. You take a million barrels out of the U.S. next year, um, it, it, and I'm not suggesting that's definitively going to happen, but I do think that it, it kind of can take a little of the edge out of some of the optimism uh, for the tanker market going be, forward. It's going to be more. Yeah, it's, 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 it's overly simplistic to suggest that it's going to be positive for tankers at the balance of the year. I, can, you know, I think Ben's right. Okay, uh, Ben, uh, we, we talked more about the crude. On the product, how, thing, how things are different there? Well, I, you know, the product, I, I think, at least in my opinion, maybe some of these smart guys know better, but uh, is trickier. Again, I think that at the moment, um, you have the advantage of a rising tide or lifting all boats. And so as more... Uh, crude is being used for floating storage. Um, it's possible you see some of that on the product side too, although less uh, um, obvious. Um, and uh, and just a, a tighter market draws uh, LR2s um, into the crude trade. We've already seen that happen. Uh, that tightens up LR1s and MRs. And 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 I think in addition to that, you also have the the contango that. Uh, that lends itself to increased levels of trading. Um, we've always thought of the product tanker market is more of a function of underlying demand, uh, whereas the crew tanker market has been more of a function of underlying supply. And right now, underlying demand is not as good. So I do think um, there's a little bit more risk to the product trade than the crude trade. I think it's less obvious from a storage uh, perspective. However, uh, I don't think that we're in a position where there's going to be decoupling of crude and products. Um, and so I think both segments do relatively well in the near term. Um, both segments are potentially a risk of that reversal that we talked about a little bit. Um, and then as you move into 2021, um, the order book is similarly very low. That's helpful, uh, but it's still going to be subject to what is the underlying consumption and demand um, for gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, which right now isn't very good, and hopefully we get a recovery. But uh, I, I, I think summing up, we like the product tanker market, probably not as much as the crude tanker market, uh, but uh, but think that they'll probably be linked. Has uh, anybody got a different opinion on this, Omar? Yeah, I would like to comment. I agree and, and, and disagree with, with Ben's perspective. I think obviously the near term, the biggest question is how much is demand down by? Is it 10 million, 20 million barrels? Who, who knows and for how long? But the product market is going to uh, have a bridge and, and sort of gets to ignore that for now because of the strength in the crude pulling up, as Ben says, lifts all boats.
But what we think actually is logical for the second half of the year, and as we think about the amount of crude oil flow in the market, there's so much oil uh, or crude in the, in the marketplace that when we think logically, one, once the demand situation is cleared up, which obviously that's just a big if, but the reality of it is there's a lot of crude in the market. That's what's oversupplied. And so as a result of it, refineries are in a better bargaining position than they have been, where they're able to now buy crude at a much cheaper price, probably pick and choose the sources of crude streams that they want. And as a result, they're going to be making a higher crack spread or a higher margin. And so as a result of that, we expect throughput to actually increase, or at the very least, just the fact that they have a higher margin means that they're going to have a higher need or, or higher urgency to book a product tanker. So our thought is, with the excess crude on the market, that puts products actually in a healthier position. Yeah, near term, there's demand risks with COVID-19, but ultimately, refineries, we think, are going to be cranking out a lot more product than they have due to the cheaper uh, input price. Yeah, and we saw that in 2015, effectively, the same same dynamic as we see now. I think just just adding on just real quick to that, yeah, it, it's real interesting because you, you talk about crude plummeting and, and you think, you know, it's going to be profitable for refineries, but we've actually seen you know, negative crack spreads at this point in, in many spots in the United States uh, just due to the implied plummet, right, in jet fuel, in gasoline. Uh, diesel not getting hit quite as bad yet, uh, but those, those spreads are plummeting. But then you look at the futures curve. Right, and you get a similar type play as oil. It's not quite as obvious, not quite as clear as oil, uh, but you have a similar sort of storage play where is the refinery going to shut in because the crack spread's negative, uh, which I think would be clearly negative, or are they going to refine now and hire some sort of storage? Uh, you know, throwing a wrinkle into that is there's a little bit more terminal capacity to store refined products in terms of percentages of the market. Uh, so I think it's gonna take a, at least a month or two to run through that uh, terminal storage. Uh, but after that's over, uh, I'm kind of optimistic about maybe like the LR2, LR1 space, uh, especially some of those older LR2s that weren't benefiting as much uh, maybe the last few months. I think the LR2 rates have been a little disappointing uh, for some of the product tanker bulls out there. Uh, so I think that might turn up. I am kind of nervous and, and worried about some of the regional MR type trades, especially if Asia keeps stumbling. And I think China coming out of the gate um, the last few weeks was optimistic, but, and we thought, right, we thought Japan was recovering well. We thought Korea was. It seems like South Korea is still doing well, uh, but we're seeing all sorts of cracks in, in Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan. Uh, so I am nervous about the, the MRs, uh, but I am a little bit optimistic about some storage in the LRs. Okay, guys, let's, let's move on very quickly to LNG and LPG. Uh, because uh, we have very little time left and I want to cover very quickly the various spaces. So on LNG and LPG, LNG, we had a very we had a bad year for the stocks, uh, for most stocks. What do we think about uh, this year? Mike? Yeah, um, it's going to be challenging. Um, you know, I think this is like every other commodity right now, uh, it's going to have some degree of, it's going to be tethered to some degree to, to brand prices. You have a lot of Brent linked LNG pricing to begin with in Asia. And obviously you've got a, a surplus of capacity um, just about everywhere. Um, so we generally suggest that uh, LNG carrier specific trades are difficult in an environment where, you know, most investors are doing top down math on how arb constrained people are. Um, I, you know, I tend to think that the, you know, in terms of like large scale projects getting done, I think there are only a handful that could reasonably get, get done. But I would highlight that, you know, this is the kind of environment where the hilly, where Golar got the hilly done. So this is when it benefits people to be small and off brand and have some sort of unique access to cheap molecule. Um, so 
again, benefits being, you know, small, small and different on the, on the carrier side. You know, I think it's going to, I think we, from a rate perspective, I, I, I think that the, I think the zero will actually end up being pretty decent. Um, you know, the equities though tend to take their cues from the larger cap names above them. So it's very difficult for Gaslog and Golar to, to outperform when, when Chenier is in the thirties. Um, you know, that said, you know, we want to be long the areas of the value chain that are, that are levered to cheap commodity prices. So we, you know, we do a ton of work on the downstream spaces. So uh, emerging market gas to power, uh, small scale LNG, you know, things like, you know, what New Fortress and, and Golar Power are working on. And uh, we think returns there are generally pretty wide. And when you, when you think about an environment where, you know, you have every major IOC, a lot of sovereigns are all you know, very pregnant with a lot of LNG. Um, and the traditional demand sinks or more are more or less saturated or or uh, impaired. You know, there's going to be a, a big impetus to build out the emerging market LNG sink. Um, so I think we're going to see the, the pace, at least, of um, of not really FSRU placement because I don't think there's a lot of that traditional business to do. But I think a lot of the the really nitty gritty downstream development. I think you're going to see a lot of IOCs leaning into that, which could lead to opportunities for people like Avenir and for Bolar and others. So. Um, I would say it's generally pretty mixed. It's tough for pricing to get much worse on the commodity side. Uh, on the freight rate side, I think that people are still evaluating. And really, with what happened with gas log in the first quarter um, and others, I think people are taking a very hard look at residual value risk and how that's accounted for in the space. Um, you know, we're long TKLNG, uh, Golar parents, um, and then we have a couple of shorts in there still as well. Um, but we'd be, so we'd a be mixed, selective. A mixed picture, generally a mixed picture uh, with the various names, each, uh, each name being particular. Does anybody else from the yeah. panel want to, to put a comment here before we jump into the dry milk as well? I think stock selection really matters in LNG, and I think you know a bone to Michael. Good job on on setting up his new shop and, and really diving into these companies because I think LNG. Every single company is so much different in what they're doing. I I don't want to be too broad of a brush, but look, I mean, crude tankers—they're all going to rise. They're all going to fall kind of together. Uh, but you look at LNG, and, and like you mentioned, TK, Golar, Gaslog, just totally different companies, totally different setups. Yeah, I, th uh, I think I personally agree that crude uh, and product will go together. Uh, all companies are very similar and LNG is quite different. If anybody doesn't have any other comment and we have little time left, uh, let's jump into Balkers and Randy, tell us what you see on the Balkers space. Yeah, you know, obviously dry bulk rates are kind of mirroring what happened last year. So last year was the recruiter mine dam failure, tape size rates went to 3,000 a day in March. Here we are in 2020, it's COVID-19, tapeside rates are 3,000 a day in March, right? So you're seeing a similar um, market as you saw last year. Um, Panamax is a smaller vessel, Supermax, they're still holding in at 7,000 a day, something like this. Um, so those trades are still working okay, um, whereas the Cape size is so on China China is starting to recover. India uh, kind of doing the inverse, right? They're going on this one-day lockdown. So that's going to affect uh, the coal trade and other things. So uh, from dry bulk, it, it, we expect a similar scenario as last year. I think there will be a very significant improvement in rates. Um, but again, you might have to wait till July, uh, kind of what you saw last year. You saw rates going from three, 4000 a day in March and April. Um, maybe eight, nine thousand a day in May and June, and then July, August, September, about 20, 25, 30,000. Right? Uh, we see a similar move, maybe not as pronounced, 
um, but we do expect a sharp demand rebound uh, in the months after demand starts to uh, you know, come back. Okay, uh, Omar, do you have something to add on the dry bulk sector? That yeah, yeah, I'd say it's uh, I generally agree with Randy, and I think the interesting thing is, you know the the dry bulk market has for the past several years actually been improving, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, it's been this, uh, three years of, of, uh, of improvement. It just hasn't felt that way because of just the volatility. And it seems that we start off every year in a much worse position, but then we rally in the second half and, and we end up with a slightly higher average. It's singles and doubles of improvement. Uh, I think what, what's interesting is that we well one, we expect that we'll continue that we're going to gradually improve from here it may not, it's not sexy per se, like VLCCs where we're talking rates are over 100,000, but dry bulk is on an improving trend. But as Randy brings up in the very near term, the Chinese have returned to work and it almost, it sets up a situation that we saw back in 09 when the market, you know, the financial crisis hit in December of 08, rates collapsed to basically zero. And then, and that was when the market had just across the globe had shut down. Then you get to May of 09, and the Chinese were the first to recover, first to go back to work, and they had every commodity out there to themselves, and they bought aggressively, and they took rates for, for CAPES. If you, if you guys remember, rates went from basically zero to about 90,000 a day when they had the whole market to themselves, and in 2009 ended up being an okay year. Not saying that we're in the same situation for this year, but it's very similar that you have across the globe activity slowing, and the Chinese are now coming back, they may have an opportunity to, to import a lot of raw materials um, at very discounted pricing and uh, you know, potentially give some ammunition to ship owners to, to drive rates higher. Okay. Um, on the container side, let's talk on the container side, except if any of you has a, a, a different view than what, the one expressed by Randy and uh, Omar here. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the container space. I was on the container panel uh, earlier today uh, where we spend a lot of time uh, talking about uh, the effects of the coronavirus and how serious that can be because uh, if demand from Western Europe and the US uh, remains low for quite some time, it will have a negative effect on the, on the container companies. The fundamentals between supply and demand seem quite good on this sector. Uh, so, so if we didn't have this uh, virus, uh, I think uh, most of uh, you would agree that we should have a pretty decent year. Uh, but the effects of this virus can be quite significant. Uh, what do you guys think, uh, Ben? Yeah, um, I, 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 I would tend to agree with all the things that you said there. Um, I think this, what is true of both the container market and the dry bulk market, to maybe even a lesser extent the, the tanker markets, is that you know, what we really haven't touched on is the possibility that we're in the earlier stages of a global recession or a global depression. And if that's the case, demand for all of these things is going to be less. And, and I think you would certainly feel that and are feeling that to a certain extent, and whether we get a recovery or not, we'll see. But um, you're seeing that to a certain extent on the, on the container side in terms of underlying volumes and blank sailings and so forth. Um, I, I, I think 
where I would get more concerned on the container side is if that were the case. And then as a derivative of that, we were to end up with another structural problem with one of the big players in the container shipping market. Uh, it, what if, what if someone like an MSC um, were to uh, have liquidity issues? Uh, how many owners have ships on contract MSC or, or, you know, containers <laughs> or what have you. Everybody. everybody. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so I, I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen, but I, I, I think we're in unprecedented times and, uh, and working under the assumption that things are automatically going to bounce right back and every, everything's going to be happy and healthy is probably a little bit naive. And, and so I think, uh, the, the prudent approach is to first analyze the downside risk and then uh, after having sorted out where there's risk and where there's not, make investment decisions on, on, on that basis. And, and I think for container shipping, it's one of those areas that I, I, I do think that there could be some uh, um, first derivative, but pretty black swan event kind of risk that's, that's possible. Yeah, I think I think you're nailing on the head. I mean, more so than any other segment, this is really a derivative finance play, right? It, it's not really traditional shipping as we think about it in terms of like dry bulk or our, or our crude oil. You know, it in, in crude oil, who cares? You know, it would be bad if a major trader went bankrupt, but we'd recover and move right past it. But in, in container ships, um, I mean, CMA CGM is is showing some stress on their balance sheet. HMM is still, I mean barely recovering, right? We got Yang Ming, Evergreen is not the strongest. Um, I mean, I would you know, say MSC is probably one of the best. I know we don't want to name and shame too much, but there are half a dozen companies that are less healthy than we'd like to see when the majority of the companies we're investing in depend upon those counterparties. So yeah, of all the segments, uh, by far, this is the one I'm most nervous about. During the previous, yeah. No, I, I, would, I would just suggest though that the, um, you know, we cover the, the, the container ships and the box leasing names and the lines. Um, we've litigated this risk in the past before, right? So we, we've seen Hanjin. And, and despite the fact that that was very messy, you know, some ship owners, you know, Maranaka, some others, like made, made, made a significant amount of money poaching value in that scenario. Most of the box leasing names recovered pretty quickly um, with pretty lost, you know, min, minimal lost EBITDA, maybe a couple of ABS facilities needed to be cured. Um, I'm not suggesting that uh, I'd want to go out and buy container level le levered equities here because I wouldn't. Um, I, I think that, you know, unless there's a, you know, some sort of independent catalysts like, like M&A. Um, but I, in this kind of environment where we're seeing these aren't isolated events. I mean, in terms of, in terms of, you know, you're talking about CMA, which is a bigger employer in the South of France. MSC would, would find some degree of sovereign Guys, support. Most, most of the lines are listed are sovereign lines that there would be a, I, I would look at containers and some of the ancillary sectors, particularly the box lessors. I keep them on my screen as something to buy when they get thrown out with the bad water because I do think I do think we would we would bounce because we have we have market has litigated that risk in the past. Okay, guys, uh, I, I'm sorry, but I see that uh, we've run out of time. I, I agree with Mike. Uh, the the big container companies, the ones that have 80 percent or 85 percent of the market, they are all stronger companies that one way or the other. During the previous crisis, they made it through. 2019 was a good year for them. 
So I, I'm quite hopeful, but uh, I, I say I'm biased, not like you guys. I have container ships, but I feel pretty safe with the names that we started with. But let's, we have to end here because the panel is done. Uh, just before we go, I would like each of you to tell me with one word, you know, which sector of the five that we touched or the six that we touched, you would think will outperform next year. Randy. Um, yeah, I'm going tankers all the way um, with one caveat of also liking Golar Limited. Okay, uh, Jay. Yeah, I like crew tankers best overall, but I'm more so nervous in a long-term picture than we've been in a long time. Okay, uh, Ben. Crew tankers. Crew tankers. Omar. Uh, similar. Crew tankers, but would say uh, dry bulk is probably the, uh, due for a big one, a big move higher. So tankers and dry bulk. And, and uh, Michael? Oh, well, if you say next year, if you mean 2021, I would almost rather not answer because I think No, no, I, 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 I'm sorry. I meant to know what basis we're going to be dealing off of at 1231-2020. Yeah, look, no, I, I'm talking about 2020. Sorry, I, I think everybody else understood 2020. So, so, so we, we all are talking about this year, the rest of the year, end of the year where we will be, or at the beginning of uh, the conference next year, so March I would I'd break it in half. I would say crew tankers in the near term, and then I would look to pick up some of the, the container-related names to get thrown out with the bathwater this summer as we start moving out of this. Okay, guys, thank you very, very much. We could have talked for much longer, but we are all uh, over time overdone. Thank you very much again, and uh, let's see what happens and hope that the virus subsides <coughs> soon for, for the humanity all over. So thank you very much.